So today is, if you didn't know this, this is the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And it's a day that is honored in, in the Lutheran Church officially, in another domination, I forget officially, because it's officially part of the church calendar. But if you don't know the history of this day, Sanctity of Life Sunday, that churches around the country are doing, it started in 1984 when President Reagan was here, and it was on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And if you don't know Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade was a Supreme Court decision that changed the way our nation views and handles this issue of, of abortion. It was at one time the states were kind of operating almost independently, setting their own regulations, and then some of those got pressed as to whether those regulations were constitutional, and then we have the Roe v. Wade, which kind of opened it up, which suggested where it is that states can say no, and where states have to back off and let the individual make their respective choices. And Roe v. Wade happened in 1973. And just for a little bit of context for you guys, that's where the Phi Center kind of enters into the story as well. We're a part of the real first wave of crisis pregnancy centers, which are this effort by the Christian church to try to do something in the form of mercy and outreach and care to try to address, as Liz Lance said, the situation surrounding what might make a woman think, hey, abortion's a good idea for me. Like, what can the church do to respond to that? And back in 74, a handful of clergy person here in town put together this thing that eventually became the Phi Center. I think the first center in the country was in 1968, um, and then we were here in 1974, part of that first wave. And so we're the oldest center here in town. We've been doing ministry here for 40-plus years, trying to address this issue of how can the church compassionately, mercifully reach out into the community to try to address this issue. So that's a little side note. So where we get this idea of the sanctity of life or the right to life is right after Roe v. Wade finished, there was an amendment that was presented to the Hogan Amendment. And in the Hogan Amendment, you hear this language. This is a joint resolution proposing an amendment to the Constitution of the United States guaranteeing the right to life to the unborn, the ill, the aged, and the incapacitated. So it's trying to take the idea that we should believe that everybody has the right to life, not that there are some segments of society that have lost that right or never have yet earned that right. That language comes from the Declaration of Independence, where we hear that we're endowed by our Creator with this right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's where he's pulling from. And that comes even further back in 1948, not further back, but in 1948, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that the UN uses has similar language. In Article 3, it says, everyone has the right to life. So this idea is one that, generally speaking, people hold. We shouldn't take other people's lives without cause, as a general rule in society. And again, that's a long time ago. 3,000 years before we have the Declaration of Independence, we have the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not kill. The majority of the people on the planet recognize that is a sacred piece of writing. That is a word that came from God that's telling us something we should not do. Thousands of years prior to the Ten Commandments, you have Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So this idea of the sanctity of life or the right to life has its foundations in that principle that is hinted at in Genesis, that we are made in the image of God. That your and my value is not determined by what we do, or who we know, or what we accomplish, where we've been, but as something that is in us, it's intrinsic to us. And we call this thing the Imago Dei. Latin for image of God. So what I'm going to do is stop right here and just kind of outline what we're going to do today. I'm going to walk through this sermon, and the ideas that I want to touch on this, first I'm going to touch on this idea of the Imago Dei. We're going to have to explain where it comes from. And then I'm going to try to make a case for death. And that may seem strange, but we'll talk about that. But the second point I want to make is I'm going to make a case for death. Then I'm going to make the case for life, and then I want to make the case for compassion. 
and the proper response that we're going to have. And so, first of all, like I said, the general consensus is that the right to life, that almost everybody you've ever met believes they have the right to life. Agreed? Like, we, of all the things we agree and d- disagree about, almost universally, we all agree that our individual life counts. Our life matters. Our rights should be protected. We agreed on that, generally. Most everyone believes that, and most people believe that also extends to others. What happens is it becomes conditional, and this we've seen all throughout the course of human history, this conditional right to life, that some segment has it, other segments do not. We see this in the concepts of slavery, right? One segment has this right to life, this dignity, another segment does not. It can be used in a different way. The concepts of ruling kings and peasant serfs, there's this distinction that was made of this particular class of citizens and this other class of people. And some, what happens is that some people have their right to life ignored. And I want to hear an important point there. Neither you nor I nor anybody else can take away someone's right to life. Again, that's another thing we think is intrinsic. What we can do is ignore it. But we cannot grant it. I cannot give you a right to life. And no sheet of paper signed by men gives you a right to life. It's something that you just have. Again, some people recognize it. Some people ignore it. But people do not grant or take that right away. What we have today is the foundation of many issues that we face today are centered around this concept. Right? The idea of wearing masks. At the heart is people feel that's a right-to-life issue. Like, if, if you've got this disease and this de- disease will cause me harm, I don't want you to give me that disease. Please put on a mask. Or I'm going to wear a mask because I don't want to catch the disease. And the laws being th- talked about are centered on that idea, the Black Lives Matter idea. Right? Regardless of what you think about the agency or the organization that is, at the heart of that cry is the idea that there's a group of people who've been marginalized, and they believe their rights or their life has not been recognized appropriately, and they're cling, crying out for their right to life. The death penalty conversation, right? The conversation is who has the right to live, and did someone who committed a crime that we believe in our statutes are of a certain caliber, have they forfeited their right to life? That's what the debate centers around, the concept of euthanasia. Right? Is there a point in time where someone's age or ability or contribution to society forfeits their right to life where other people can now intervene and say, okay, no longer? The conversation about the border in the USA and Mexico, right? The heart of that is this cry out that we should not be treating people in this way because we believe those people have a value and a dignity, right? And so the argument presents, what should be the way we handle that situation? It's all centered around this idea of the image of God, the Imago Dei, and of course, the situation of abortion. We have decided by statute that there's a segment of our society that doesn't fall under this category of the right to life. Some do, some do not, and by law, anybody who's not yet been born does not in our society have an intrinsic right to life. That right to life is contingent upon the motivations, the desires, the circumstance surrounding the mom. And whatever that circumstance or situation or motivation is determines whether or not that child in the womb has the right to life. It's conditional. It's derivative of the mother's situation. That is not how God ordered it. So again, these are Imago Dei things. So the question I want to present to us is, what is Imago Dei? So the first thing is, where do we get it? So Genesis 1.26, a familiar passage, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image 
after our likeness. So there's that in our image. So we get this idea of imago Dei. And then in 127, he follows through. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so what does that mean to us? Right? It's, a, it's a cool thing to say, imago Dei. Try it, imago Dei. Right? But what does it mean? One thing that it means is it means that we are similar to, but not exactly like the creator of the universe. And theologians debate on exactly what it means. Does it mean we have a physical similarity? Does it mean we have his capacity to think and reason? Does it mean we have the capacity to express emotions? We don't know exactly because the Bible doesn't say exactly what the image of God manifests in us. All we know is that we are this resemblance, this, this similar picture of who God is, of what God is, but to what degree we do not know. So in short, it is that we are similar to, but not the same as God. But then second, it's that we are unique among creation. Of all the things that God made, galaxies and animal kingdoms and plant kingdoms and fungus and beetles and bugs and comets and whales and oceans and mountains, none of those things were made in the image of God. The only thing in creation made in the image of God are human beings, male and female. So we're similar to but not the same as God and that we're unique among creation. It gives us this particular quality. There's a quality that we have that doesn't, isn't present in other parts of creation. And it also gives us this idea of an absolute equality. You being made in the image of God, me being made in the image of God, puts us on the same playing field. Regardless of what I might achieve in life or you might achieve in life, that quality is you shared between us. It is equal between us because it is intrinsic. It is not connected to what we say or do, where we live, when we were born, who we know. And it's just part of who we are. So we share that. It's particular about us in creation. It gives us absolute equality. Again, it's not something earned or given by laws, but within us. I want, to hear, I want you to hear this quote because it ties into what was going on with the relationship of kings in the time where this was written and what the Israelites were experiencing walking around a few thousand years ago. The idea that kings and rulers of these different nations were viewed as little gods, and some of them, even that language, they were an image of God, a manifestation of God, a presence of God in the world. And this guy's a researcher at the National University of Ireland, and he just gives an interesting perspective on this, and he says this, the king had what might be understood in modern times as, quote, the divine right to rule. It obviously was advantageous to the ruling arist aristocracy to be linked with the divine. The biblical tradition, nonetheless, while perhaps inspired by these older myths, differs greatly in that the image of God idea is not reserved to one ruling individual, but is it extended to both male and female, to one and all. So if you set yourself back there, it's shaking up a system of people who understood a hierarchy or a caste concept that you have royal people and you have common people. The royal people, they're in the image of God. They've got a particular relationship with God. The common people do not. We're subservient, we're submissive to, we're dependent on. And when Moses writes this idea, we suggest it to Moses, when God pens this through his author, and he says, we are made in the image of God, again, that changes. That's a, that's a revolutionary thought in human history. And again, it's the root of all civil rights, is this idea that we have this equality rooted in this intrinsic value that we are made in God's image. So he says, imago Dei, you're made in the image of God, and that's inclusive in its own right, but then he specifies it a little bit, male and female. It's interesting, because much of the language in the Bible has got a male swing to it. In many different languages, groups are referred to in a masculine term, but he takes this effort to say male and female made in the image of God. 
It's important. Do you know that you are male or you are female from the moment you are conceived? If you guys don't know the science of it, the little part of the man that joins with the little part of the woman, they have half of what you need. And the woman has the X chromosome and the male chromosome is going to either be the X or the Y. And this male is what determines whether or not you will be a male or a female. And the moment they unite, you've either got an XY or an XX, right? From the moment of your conception, the male and female quality is within you, right? The traits don't manifest till later on in our development. We don't see the organs, don't process the hormones. But from the moment you are conceived, the information is there and it has been determined if you are male or you are female. So there's an inclusiveness in this male and female concept. And I don't want to place into Scripture more than what Scripture is saying, but I just want to say that we now know definitively that male and female is established from the moment of conception. You take that for what you will. That said, there are unique challenges that our society sees and faces based on the, in the, the, the aftermath of the fall. And as an aside here, we, this whole idea of what is transgender, right? What does it mean to know your gender? And what does it mean to have a biological sex? And how does that play in the world? That's another one of these issues that's being talked about at length and that is incredibly emotional right now, right? There's a lot of heat behind this. I just want to remind you, church, that as you seek to understand, you try to navigate that, don't forget the call to be a compassionate person listening, caring person, and hopefully also a learning person. And if you're interested, I'm going to recommend two books. And by the way, references I make this morning, books I recommend, I've given them all to Susan, that if you guys wanted to, she can get them for you. So if you guys have questions or want to follow up with any of this stuff, she has an email she may not have seen yet that's got links to all this stuff, and you can follow it up. So you don't need to write them down if you don't want to. But one of them is called Affirming God's Image by J. Allen Branch. And the other one is called Intersex in Christ, Ambiguous Biology and the Gospel. And both of those books wrestle with some of the very rare, particular kind of medical abnormalities that sometimes happen that make us kind of scratch our head and wrestle with some of these questions. And these are at least introductions to some of these challenges. And so if this is a question curious to you, there's people in your life wrestling with some of these things, these may be resources for you to go and learn. And both of them have this kind of pastoral vibe to them. As I was reading recommendations about them, that they're not heavy-handed, they're not heavily academic, but they understand the people quality of the fact that we live around tables and we talk to each other on the phone. And we need to understand these things conversationally to be able to communicate them in a helpful way. So a little bit of an aside, but I wanted just to address that. So going back to the end of, of, of the quote where it says, this idea is to one and all. That intrinsic worth informs this idea of the right to life. But the reason we have this thing is because conditions exist in our nation where in our world the, the right to life is not maintained in a one and all everybody scenario. So listen to this. And census data that we have from 1990 to 2011, the latest that we have it that I could find, between 1990 and 2005, between 4.1 and 12.1 million females were aborted in India because they were female. Again, the reporting is inaccurate, but between 4 and 12 million little girls were killed because they were girls. That's not equality. That's not right to life for all. That's not sanctity of life for all. That is conditional. In China today, if you're not paying attention to this, what's going on with the treatment of the Uyghur people? One of the things happening is forced abortions. Women who are found to be pregnant in China are being taken and they're being given abortions against their will because they're trying to control the population of the Uyghur people in China. If you're not paying attention to that particular civil rights issue in the world, it's a pretty ugly one that's happening right now over in China. But again, those people 
They're not being given this universal image of God, imago Dei, right to life. There's a condition that has been established by that particular government. This is another stunning one. There was a study done of 18 European countries. And in those countries of babies that were found to have Down syndrome in the womb, 88% of them have been aborted. In Denmark, it is 95%. So they find out through amniocentesis or some other treatment if the baby is ill. And if the baby is ill, they terminate it. And that's not right to life. That's not image of God in all. That is a conditional concept, and that is not what the Bible teaches. And is this thing that's happening around the world, this, this blight that is on us as a people that forces us to have moments like this where we try to remind the church, we have this quality, you and I, they and us, every one of us, and we are called as ministers of the gospel to speak into these things, to do something about these things. And these reminders are necessary because the darkness is real. In just these United States, since Roe in 1973, 59,902,500 babies have been aborted. And that's a low number. That doesn't count abortions that happen at home. That doesn't count abortions that are happening through medicines before they go to a, a, a clinic that reports it. But just for context, that number, that's the populations of Texas, Florida, and Virginia combined. The amount of abortions that have happened since Roe. And you can, you can interpret this statistic however you need to. 37% of the abortions are performed in the wombs of 13% of the female population, that being African Americans. African Americans are having rates at five times the amount of abortions that are happening. And you tell me whether or not there's, a, there's an agenda in the machine that is driving the abortion industry. I'll let you interpret that, but all I'm saying is that's what the stats tell you. It's awful, isn't it? I mean, it's a depressing reality to think through something like that in a moment like this, that this is happening in our world, and y'all, this is an us thing. We are part of this human species. This is our society. This is our community. And yes, as a church, we are called not to be of the world, but we are in this world, and we are part of this human experiment which is why I want to transition into this idea of the case for death. The case for death. See, I think it's strange. What happened was I was getting ready to write this little sermon. I was looking through kind of the, the typical ways we talk about the right to life and the typical ways we talk about this. And we have a kind of a handful of verses we go to with frequency, and I was trying to do it differently, and I was going to look at David, and there's a couple of moments in David's life where he expresses this hospitality towards someone who the rest of society would have viewed as someone you don't show a hospitality to, someone who is disabled, someone who is his enemy, praying for a baby who was dying. I mean, these cool moments, and I was just wrestling with it, and I was like, wait a minute, like literally the page behind, he just murdered somebody. It's like, it's really tough for me to try to convince a bunch of people, look at this guy and look at these moments of why we, we honor life and look at what he did over here. And then I just started wrestling with, I mean, the Bible's really got a lot of violence in the back of it, the front half of it, however you want to describe that. And I was just wrestling in my, in my mind with the idea that we in a church accept a lot of things. We've wrestled with some things. But out in the world, the idea that God cares about the life of every human being oftentimes is met with a little bit of a shrug. Because they'll go, but what about 
the violence that's in the Old Testament? What about the times that God kills people either directly through something like the plague in the Exodus or like the flood of Noah or by proxy, by using the military of people around? You see lots of killing. How can you tell me that God honors all life and then also hold in the other hand the idea that there is this, this violent killing God that we read about in the Old Testament? And I just felt that was a legitimate question to wrestle with. If we're going to try to make the case for life, we also better be able to make this case for death. Because initially when I read it, it was hard. So the first thing I want us to look at is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. And that's the entirety of the argument. I mean, in a nutshell, that's the argument. In the beginning, God. And what I mean by that is God is holy. God is just. God is awesome. God is other. God is not of this universe. He's not of this universe. God didn't walk around here and become something great. God is not part of this world that he created. Everything that we see, everything that we experience, everything that we felt, everything that is possible happened because God made this thing. He transcends this thing. He's greater than this. And in short, it is his universe. Therefore, he makes the rules. That's fundamental. It's essential Christian theology. This world is God's. We're living in it. He makes all the rules. We're called to submit to them. He is the owner. He is the creator. He is the rule maker. He is the king. Genesis 2.16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the God who made it all, the God who's allowed to set the rules, set the rule. If you do that, you will die. Death is introduced. So hear this for a minute. This thing we begin to bristle with, that God has tied death to disobedience, but y'all, it's as certain as gravity. If you step off of a cliff, you will fall to the ground, and you will fall to the ground because of gravity. God put order and laws in the universe that affect the way this universe works. One of the laws had to do with morality and submission. You obey me. If you don't obey me and you sin, you go your own way, you miss the mark, death happens. That's the rules. We are not entitled, you and I, to an existence. And I think when we start to think about our problems in life and our, our struggles with morality and gods, it is this idea, we believe we are owed this life. The fact that we exist, we think kind of means we should have existed or we are entitled to this, but we are not entitled to an existence. The fact that you were conceived is a blessing. It is a gift. It is bonus. He made the whole entire world. And then he's allowing you to live in it. Your existence is a gift. You are not entitled to another breath. I am not entitled to another breath. I mean, every breath we take is a gift. It's a blessing. It's a miracle. You are not owed it. Teach me to number my days tells the scripture, so that we would be appreciative, that we would be grateful, that we would be good stewards of living in God's universe. But you are not promised another day. You are not entitled to, certainly not, another day. 
we have actually an inheritance of death. This is what we learn from the fall. And we talk about the federal head in Adam and that it has affected all of us. But we all have this now sin condition, this genetic, moral genetic problem that is passed down through all generations who are born of man, that we have this sin thing. So we have this inheritance of death. So while our conception is a blessing and our life on this earth is a blessing, we are born and living in this earth with this sin condition and this sin condition carries with it death, which was promised from the beginning, which was spelled out before before sin was ever committed. This is just the rules of the game. This is how life works. Every one of us will die. Another one of those things that we don't have a trouble understanding out in the world outside the church. We understand our lives matter and we understand people die. And then finally, in this idea that we aren't as good as we like to think that we are. You guys, church, we struggle with this. We struggle with this. It's easy for us to look to our left or to our right and see other people's sin, especially sin that becomes public. And we can find a bit of reprieve in it. When we see someone else in trouble, we can think, man, not only would I, I wouldn't do that. And we can feel a little bit better then. Matthew Henry had a kind of a funny quote, I think. He said, sin is exceedingly sinful. It's to the point. The idea that we have a category of sins, bigger sins and smaller sins, and we believe that it's okay for us the little white lies we say. It's okay for us the little things we do, the little times we cheat, the little times we rush, the little times we're hasty, the times we dishonor our parents, the times we, we're not full of integrity, the times we steal just a little bit by watching something that we shouldn't watch that someone else is paying for me. The little things that we do, we're full of all these little tiny sins that we tolerate. But we look at the grander sins. And we say, I'm not doing those, and we feel a sense of feeling okay. But listen, what did it take for Adam and Eve to have death brought into the world and the consequence of death for all humanity? They didn't kill anybody. They didn't commit some grand fraud. They ate a piece of fruit. They ate a piece of fruit. Guys, it's not just about the action that we take. There's lots of actions that we could take that fall into the category, the umbrella term of sin. It's not about the action. It's about what's going on in our heart that allows us to do those actions. That little moment of idolatry where we engage in this knowledge of the tree of good and evil and we think, I know better than God does what is right and what is wrong and I don't really believe that this thing that God has put out of bounds will bring me death. I'm going to engage in this thing. And the fact that I'm not immediately feeling painful consequences, I'm going to use that as my evidence that God doesn't know what he's talking about. It's idolatry. It's pride. It shows up in tiny ways, but it is the same ugly root. So whether it shows up in one of the, quote, big sins of of an egregious thing or it's one of the little tiny things, it is the same ugly root. And it goes back to the same tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it goes back to the same disobedience from Adam and Eve, which brought death into the world and which is why we have this inheritance of death. We are not as good as we think that we are. Romans chapter 3, verses 5 through 19, Paul spells this out plainly. I'm not going to read the whole passage, actually, for the sake of time. I'm going to read um, 11 through 18 for now. He says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Y'all, that's us. 
Now bear in mind, we live post-Christ in the sense of his incarnation, the Emmanuel with us. We live post the crucifixion and post the resurrection. We live in the season of grace and we've been paid for by the blood of Christ. Absolutely true. But we've got to be careful not to separate ourselves too much from the true problem of humanity. This passage describes the human heart the human heart that you and I were born with, that describes the guilt that we all carry. And without Christ, that is just a truth about us. Again, we, praise the Lord, have Christ who's now living in us and restored us and given us a new heart, but this is who we were, and this is who we could be. And we need to remember, this is humanity. These people in us that we like to think of as pretty good people. Scripture doesn't leave a lot of gray area there. If you read, there's two Old Testament episodes that help establish this. And Morty, I'm actually going to not read these whole passages again. I'm going to just discuss them. But if you remember the story of the city of Sodom, Abraham pleads for Sodom and he says to God, if you can find just 50 righteous people, will you spare the city? And so God says, sure, if I could find 50. Then Abraham presses into it and says, how about 40? How about 15? Whatever. He gets to 10. If there are 10 righteous people in the whole city, God, will you spare it? And God in his mercy said, sure. You know what happened to Sodom? It was destroyed. There weren't 10 people in that city living righteously. They all were destroyed. That's not a condemnation of the Lord. That's a condemnation of the people who were living in defiance to the Lord, who were living, displaying these characteristics. But before we get too crazy and think about, well, yeah, it's a city, go back a little bit further in Genesis Chapter 6, where we're learning about the flood, where the Bible says that there's no one who was seeking after God. The world had become wicked. All their evil thoughts were in them, and God destroyed it all, not just a city. So we have two episodes in Scripture where God annihilates huge swaths of the population because of the idea there was no one who was righteous. No, not one. And then we have to look that in those, you see this preservation happen with Noah and his family, and that's a whole other question I'll let Lance answer later. You have this way that God has typecast. He's shown us this eventual thing that's going to happen through Christ, through these particular people. But as a rule, we look back, and it, God didn't say, well, yeah, most of the people are pretty good. I'm going to hold. No, evil, wickedness in our hearts. Our throats are viperous. They're full of poison. We destroy, we hurt, we maim, we kill. This is true of the people of earth. Describing this, this passage in Romans 3, a pastor named Sinclair Ferguson, whom I appreciate, he said this, referring to Paul, as he scours the entirety of human history and the population of the world, divided as it was in his estimation between two great categories, the, the Gentile world that lacked the pages of Scripture and the Jewish world that had been given the special revelation of God. He scans the entire population of the universe, calling out from his heart for one righteous man to be able to stand forward, a true woman to be able to stand in the presence of God on their own resources, on the basis of their own flesh, and he knocks these solemn nails into the coffin of our own self-sufficiency. There is none righteous. No, not one. What that's telling us is that every death in all of human history was in this holy and legal sense, deserved. Y'all, that's tough news. It pushes back against the things we want to think about each other. It pushes back against our own sense of, of a value that I, I, I don't deserve that. 
The people I know and love don't deserve that. I mean, sure, some do, but not me and not my people. We fight again. It just doesn't feel right because death is not part of what it's supposed to be. And that's a true thing. We were not made to experience that. Remember, before the fall, that's not how things were. But we chose it. We chose this thing. The reason we don't like it so much is because we're not supposed to be experiencing it, but we are. And that's a consequence of the fall. And that's the world with which we live. Remember, God created the universe. It's his rules. These were the rules he set forth. This was the path that was chosen. So we're living in the aftermath of that. But no, this good does not make God a villain. And this is where the pushback comes. People view that and they want to attribute some sort of moral judgment to God because of what they see happening. The evidence of these deaths in the Old Testament, again, either directly by God or by proxy, do not make God a villain. Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11 says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You'll hear people describe just the opposite, that God's some sadistic king laughing on his throne, just smiting people. This doesn't display the heart of God. This does. I have no joy. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9 says something similar, that his patience that God is showing, the fact that we're still here and the earth has not been just melted from the inside and destroyed, is an evidence of God's patience and God's kindness, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We see this evidence of God's mercy present even in the midst of his wrath, that his wrath and his mercy are both true. His justice and his holiness are both true. They're attributes of God, intrinsic qualities of him. He can do both. So we're living both in the aftermath of the fall, but also in the presence of God's immense patience. So yeah, the Old Testament's full of violence. But we don't need to be as anxious about it because this death we know was caused by mankind. It's perpetuated by mankind. And when God acted directly, he was justified because the evil that is in mankind. And so this rope that we're going to, there's three braids of this rope they're going to carry us forward to today. And the first one is, again, it's in Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, that's one string. This is the idea of mankind's guilt. We do this. Then it says, by man shall his blood be shed. Weaving this together, this is God's righteous response to this thing. And the righteous response is rooted in the last part. For God made man in his image. And those three things weave together to make this rope that carries us into today. That life's intrinsic quality is the root of the sanctity of life. God's response is appropriate. Because we are the ones that are committing the crimes. But it's, these crimes have this particular ending to them in part because we're made in God's image which brings us to the case for life. We're going to look at one passage, Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25. And if you want, I believe it's going to be on the, on the screen for you. Exodus 21, 22 through 25. And this passage was chosen for two reasons. One, I believe it makes a great case for this idea of the Imago Dei in all of us, regardless of circumstance. And two, it's because a lot of people who want to suggest that God not only condones, but is in favor of abortion, will use this particular passage to tell that story. And again, it's Exodus 21. Verses 22 through 25. It says, when, a man, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determined. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, 
wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And depending on the translation you were reading, you might have seen the word miscarriage in that verse. You might have seen the word further in that passage. I won't talk much about further, and that was just a total addition. Like, we don't know why the NASB chose to put the word further in, but they did in their original trans. If you have a newer NASB, by the way, it's not written that way anymore. They've corrected. But for whatever reason, they had that there. We're not going to talk about further, but we're going to talk about the other word, that idea of miscarriage. And again, the idea is that this passage is the biblical case for abortion. And the assertion is this. The men were fighting. The woman was pregnant. She was hit. And when she was hit, she was harmed and delivery happened. They're calling that delivery miscarriage, the idea that the baby was born dead. And the implication is the violence caused the baby's premature demise. But then they read in that passage, for the woman, if she were to die, it is paid for by a life. And if the child dies, we're only going to pay a fine. And the, the conclusion is the fact that God makes that distinction. The baby born dead is only a fine. The woman born dies. That is capital punishment. See, God views developed humans differently than he does babies in the womb. Therefore, abortion is either morally neutral or it's a good. Right? That's the basics of the argument. You can look it up in more detail if you want to. The problem is the English translation is broken. Again, I'm not going to stand here as if I'm an expert in Hebrew and I'm an elite Bible. That's not what I'm doing. I'm leaning on the, standing on the shoulders of people much smarter than I am, just being one who rathered a lot of information and sharing it now with you. But that translation is incorrect. In the ESV, the translation of that phrase is, her children came out. In the NIV, you might have read, she gives birth prematurely. And those two translations are much more closely related to the word. The word come out is this yatsah, is the Hebrew word. That's the last Hebrew pronunciation I'll do today. But that word is the one in question. And it's referring to birth. In fact, it's referring to the living children. In Genesis 25, 25, we see the same word. It says, and the first came out, read all of him like a hairy robe, and they called his name Esau. So describing the birth of a live child, we see this word being used. Also, Genesis 15, 4, 1 Kings 8, 19, Jeremiah 1, 5, 2 Kings 20, 18. Every time we see that word being used in those verses, it is delivering a live baby. In fact, that word is used 1,061 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Never is it translated in miscarriage, except in this particular context by a handful of translators. Never is it that word. Never. So the question then becomes, is there a word for miscarriage in the Hebrew language? Is it just a matter of their language didn't have something specific? Well, actually, there were two. There were two. And this particular author, one chapter later in Genesis, I mean, Exodus 23, 26, he uses it. He says, neither, not, I'm sorry, none shall miscarry. That word means to miscarry, to suffer abortion, to be childless. It is unequivocally stating a baby that is born dead, a baby that dies in the womb. It is the word we would use miscarriage to describe or non-induced abortion, like a natural occurring abortion. So the point is the author could have chosen the word miscarriage, one of two if he wanted to, but he did not. He chose this other word to come forth, which every other time that it is used in this context means to give birth to a living person. What about the word for children? Some of your verses may say, the children came out. And that word also is interesting. Never in the Hebrew Old Testament does that word ever refer to a miscarried child. In fact, there's a word in the Hebrew for embryo or fetus in Psalm 139. This is a familiar passage to the pro-lifers in the room. For you knew me in my mother's womb, right? This unformed substance idea, that's a Hebrew word for this idea of embryo or fetus. 
It's describing that what is inside the womb on its way to being born. So again, the author had a word that could have described what you would use to infer that it was a miscarriage, but he did not. He used this word for child or children that is used to describe children, formed humans. It is not limited to a baby in the womb, and is certainly not qualified as someone who has passed away. And it reminds me again in the New Testament, we see Luke do something similar. In Luke chapter 141, he says that we're talking about John. When John was excited that Jesus had come near and both were in the womb, by the way, it says John leapt for joy. And the word we see to describe there is the word brephos. Then the next chapter over, Luke chapter 2, we see Jesus wrapped in swaddling cloths. So now the baby is born and out and with his mother and father, and we can see the word brephos. So Luke chooses a Greek word to describe both the baby in the womb and the baby out of the womb as the same, which I think communicates a shared value. It communicates imago Dei. Moses did the same in his writing of Exodus. Babies in the womb in this context, given the same quality, that it might not be confused. There's a guy named H. Wayne House who is a doctor of theology. He's also a lawyer. He teaches like all, he's a well-qualified dude. I want to share a quote by him, and I share the quote by him not to suggest his opinion of it is what makes it valid. I believe scripture makes it valid. He just offers a succinct uh, summary of it where he says, the passage does not deal with a miscarriage caused by the injury of a pregnant woman and a physical struggle. This passage then gives no support whatsoever to the legitimacy of abortion. What we do see in this passage is what we see in Genesis 9-6, that whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Whether that, baby is, that person is born or unborn, it's a fetus or an infant, it's a woman or a man, regardless of their circumstance, regardless of what title we give to that human person, all of them are made in the image of God. And God says, if any of you take the life of that one, it will be returned to you. That life is that valuable. Every one of us has that protection. Every one of us has that honor given to us by a holy God. You were given my image, and I give you my protection. Because you're made in my image, all of us, everywhere. This is where we have this biblically protected right to life. So I want to close with the idea of a case for compassion. I realize i gotta, I got to hurry, so I'm just going to end this quick. I want to just point us to the golden rule. That whatever we would do unto others, want done to us, we would do unto others, right? In that verse, we have embedded the idea that you know and I know how we're to be treated. And that's evidence of the fact that we know in whose image we're made. We know we have a value. And Jesus is telling us, take that understanding of yourself and project that forward to others and see in them the same image of God that you're clinging to in yourself and treat them with the same dignity, the same compassion, the same kindness that you would expect to be treated you. So, to the child in the womb, what would you want? Right? You'd want life. You'd want a chance. What about to the woman who's with child but is in a really, really bad situation? What would you want? You'd want support. You'd want direction. You'd want hope, you'd want assurance, you'd want fellowship, you'd want friendship. What about the woman who has aborted her child? Or the man who's had a child that has been aborted? You'd want someone to listen. You'd want mercy. You'd want grace. You'd want healing. You'd want another chance. And through the cross, we have those things. Church, we know the truth of the Imago Dei. Either in our own self-awareness or viral the special revelation of Scripture 
We know it, and we're commanded to recognize it in others. We're called to listen, to understand, to walk with people, and this applies to all of us, male or female, born or unborn, all shades of brown, able-bodied or disabled. The Imago Day is in all of us, and we're called to live in light of that truth. Let me pray. Father God, I pray your mercy over this room. Lord, first and foremost in my heart, I just, I want all of us to recognize that you are the holy God, you are the creator, and anything, Lord, that I might have said that is misleading or confusing or um, of my own flesh, Lord, I pray that you would purge it from our minds, Lord, but the true uh, transcendent and everlasting and living word of God, Lord, would be the things that we cling to. Lord, and I do just in this moment want to lift up anyone within the hearing of my voice where abortion has been a part of their story. Lord, mothers who have lost their children, fathers who have lost their children, to whatever degree of complicity they, they may have played, Lord, I pray that the mercy of the cross would be on them, that no one in this room who has been bought with the blood of Christ would hear condemnation, but know the truth that there is no condemnation that is in Christ Jesus. And Lord, and I pray that you would call them out of the captivity of shame and the captivity of, 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 of fear, and help them to recognize what you have done, that they can take, that you, Lord, will take that part of their story and allow them to honor their child and allow you to take that story and bear fruit in the world. God, you are good. You are the restorer of people. You are the regenerator of hearts. You are the giver of good things. Lord, we leave this at your feet. In Christ's name I pray.